0: All right, thanks, Katie. Well, hey, everybody. Well, if you're just tuning in or you're new to ResPrez, we're in the middle of our summer psalm series. In this season of Ordinary Time, we're going through what we've described before as a hymn book that God has given us with songs that he wants his people to sing. The Bible is a collection of works written by many people in different places and times, all inspired by God that tell us who he is and what he requires of us. It's not just instruction or historical accounts or wisdom or letters, but it also includes poetry and what we read now, songs. Songs, of course, are more than just the lyrics and they carry a deeper meaning and significance than just the words convey. A feeling and importance is delivered in the tone, rhythm and melody, and we're naturally drawn to and resonate with a good song. Psalm 98 belongs to a small collection of hymns uh, that are known as the enthronement psalms. At the time of writing, these were used by God's people in worship around holy festivals to celebrate God as their heavenly king. It's a call for the whole earth to respond to her king in joy. And it starts with declaring a need for a new song. Now, I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I find it difficult to fully appreciate the call for a new song from when it was first announced thousands of years ago. We're in a different time and we're in a different culture, and it's hard for this to fully resonate with who and where we are today. After our reading and telling of this song, how can we bring fresh eyes and ears such that the true meaning is not lost, but rather shows more depth and understanding in the original? It's a silly example to me, but uh, it, it seems like trying to pull off a cover song. A few years back, the legacy rock band Weezer covered Africa. Now that was a pop hit from 1983, and you can agree or disagree, but it was just excellent. They they nailed it. It was their biggest hit in 10 years, and it was the number one single on streaming services. I only had a passing familiarity of the original, but the new vocals and tracks channeled the source material so well, I just felt a desire and passion as if I was hearing it for the first time. I also found out the song had new meaning for me because before I had no idea what the song was about. It's, it's so cheesy. Look, uh, the synopsis is this. Hey, I read something about Africa in a book. Sounds like a cool place. Weezer nailed that cover by leaning in full throttle into the goofiness and the mocking seriousness of it. And that right there, I think that's the fatal flaw of cover songs. And that's why it's so hard to pull it off. They often land as insincere or uninspired, and very few cover songs I know are unilaterally appreciated. This is especially true when we're talking about a song with a deep and a heartfelt meaning, like finding joy in a true, faithful love. Joy is a deep and vulnerable emotion for us. It doesn't take much pressure in the right place to crumple it. And the higher the stakes and the greater the joy, the more danger and hurt is involved if, or when it breaks so we guard our hearts from hope and joy sometimes that's prudent and it's wise this is a deep longing in our very core and to reach out puts us in an exposed state it's not to be treated lightly sometimes it just feels safer not to get our hopes up but deep down we know we can't live without joy and hope it's like we were made for it. we therefore have a need to find something worthy to place our hope and our joy upon. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word and the psalm today. Thank you for gathering us here today in worship and that you would be here with us. I pray that our hearts are open and receptive to your word and your Holy Spirit. I pray that the word spoken only convey Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Okay, so today we'll look through why, why God has given us Psalm 98. We'll first investigate why the psalmist calls the people of his day to sing to the Lord with a new psalm. The song is structured in three parts, so we're going to look at three reasons to sing. One, we sing for his rescue. Two, we sing for his reign. And three, we sing for his return. And then lastly, we'll go back through and see why we join the psalmist in singing today through what Christ has fulfilled. First, we sing for his rescue. The psalmist starts off this song with an interesting hook, one that is simple and intriguing. We're told that this is an occasion to sing a new song. Why? Well, because of marvelous things. It's a teaser of sorts for what's to unfold. It's then explained that God's right hand and holy arm have won salvation. The term right hand and holy arm is loaded with meaning, so let's go ahead and unpack that. We know God does not have physical substance, so how then does God have a holy arm and a right hand? What this metaphor exemplifies is action solely on the part of God. He alone has worked mighty and extraordinary means in space and time, a deliberate action in the salvation of the psalmist people in a seemingly hopeless situation. For anyone that, who is, who's been in Christian circles for a while, I, I think we hear salvation, and instinctively we think, That's Jesus. Now, that's a good answer, and it's true for us, but let's not rush it here and peer into what the psalmist means. Salvation here occurred in the psalmist's past. It's not explicit what the psalmist means by salvation, but this can be several things in the history of Israel, such as God's rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt, his deliverance of them through the wilderness, and more recently, military victories in securing the promised land. In each of these instances, we see clearly that this is God's action alone. The rescue from Egypt. We can't look back and use this as a textbook example of how we can follow Moses' strategy to free and oppressed people. That's silly. It was God who saved them, who sent the plagues, passed over Israel's houses in judgment, caused the Pharaoh to release them, and caused the sea to split so that they could escape. The deliverance through the wilderness. Likewise, that's not a case study in survival craft or lessons on resiliency or how to logistically operate as a nomad people. It was God who led them with a pillar of fire and smoke, gave them manna from heaven to eat, and saved them from poisonous snakes. The victories in battle, such as the Battle of Jericho, can't be attributed to masterful tactics to perform a siege against a hardened fortress. God's people marched around the city, blowing horns for six days, and on the seventh the walls collapse. This was God's doing. His right hand and holy arm manifest. We see here that God is a God of action, and this is worthy of praise. What did these actions accomplish? It was for salvation. These were actions conducted in history to rescue and secure the future for all of God's people through promises made from God to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. These actions, they were not also done in secret. At the end of verse 2, we're told that they've been made known to the nations. Acts of God are quite peculiar indeed, and they would have clearly attracted attention. Everyone involved in these events is aware that God is with his people, and he acts. Next here, in verse 3, we see another component of why God is to be praised. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. This phrase here, steadfast love and faithfulness, is also loaded with meaning. This is explicitly talking about God's unmerited love for his people. God has chosen his people, not for who they are or what they've done, but rather a display of who God is. God is not only a God of action, but a God of character. He remembers his promises and he keeps them. Even when his people forget, he is not capricious. He is steadfast. And he is for his people. Here in the first stanza of the song, we see this is not about what Israel did or does, but this is about God. Through the ages, he remembers his covenants and he acts upon them in such a way that no one else can. This is why we sing for his rescue. Now we look to why we sing for his reign. We started with an uh, with an intriguing premise, a marvelous past, and now we move into the psalmist present in the second act. We look at what God's people do in response, and we see what God is doing now. Verses 4 to 6 show the response of God's people. It's rejoicing. Not just that, but loud, unstoppable, untethered joy. They break forth into joyous song, and they sing praises, and the sound is unmistakable. Now, I don't live close enough to Randall Stadium to hear the cheers. But when I was a kid, we'd sometimes spend summer nights at my granddaddy's house. At the edge of the backyard was a dense forest, but beyond that, there was a big baseball complex. I couldn't see it through the trees, but I'd always know when there was a game, and I could always distinguish when someone hit a home run. First, there's silence and a short crack of the bat, followed by loud shouts of surprise. There'd be a short lull and a rise of noise until it was certain that ball was gone. Then, riotous right celebration until the batter rounded the bases, and the next pitch was at hand. Listening to the loud, distant cheers, the excitement was infectious, even if I couldn't see the game firsthand. And the praise of the Old Testament worshipers was not just to be loud, happy shouts, but also joined in with instruments. Here we see in verse 5, the instruments themselves sing praises, and they bring an artful melody to praise the Lord. Now, I appreciate music, but I'm certainly no musician by any means. Yes, I own a guitar, and I can strum it, but I have no skill. It's because I don't practice very much and I haven't dedicated time and effort to develop it over my life. For those who have, though, that persistence and devotion, they work into something amazing and compelling. And it brings meaning and deeper understanding. It inspires us and it honors the subject. This pleasing order and arrangement and art and skill resulted from a lifetime of devoting praises to the Lord in the musician's calling. It's been worked on and developed and refined. As the music builds in verse six, we then hear the trumpets break forth. They're loud, declarative, and they're regal in their sound. They usher in no one else but God, the King, of course. Here's yet another quality we add to why we sing praises to God. He is a God of action. He is a God of character and of present authority. His authority and rule are over all of the earth. He is not a God of one locality or of only one people. But God's domain is of everyone, everywhere. And he rules presently in the time of the psalmist. At the time of writing, there was physical and spiritual signs and presence of God's reign. He had given them the promised land. He had given them an everlasting covenant that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. He had given them their law, and it was all-encompassing to show how much he cared for them. Before these things, there was chaos and uncertainty. And God provided them a means for order and assurance, reconciliation, and flourishing, both personally and corporately. God worked not just extraordinarily in their past, but was with them in ordinary present. And the rightful response was this building crescendo of unbridled, skillful joy. The God of action, character, and authority is with his people now. What a joyous occasion to sing for his reign. Now we look at the third act, and we look to why we sing for his return. We've seen the psalm rise from a triumph in the past to a rising shout in the present. And now we look to what the psalmist sees in the future. And it's nothing short of wonderful, and it's the fullest measure of joy. No longer is it only shouts of all the people of earth, declaiming what God has done and what he's doing, but now we see all of creation join in on the excitement and the praise. Verse 7, the sea roars, all that fills it, the world and all who dwells in it. The two domains of the earth cannot be contained in their joy and their passion in praising God. Now, if you recall, and you've been here a bit, we've talked before about how the sea is a frightening place in biblical times. It's the embodiment of chaos, danger, destruction, and a dread of what lurks beneath the waves. But here, the sea roars in joy and everything in it. It joins in the chorus of exclaiming God, and so does everything in the earth. In a great union, all created things come together to sing praises to God. This is done in a wonderful and a previously irreconcilable harmony between sea and earth. And there is no doubt the full dominion of God. We only get a small glimpse of what this could look like when the final snow melts in the spring. And trees and plants burst forth, and birds and squirrels and people all alike come outside to shake off the winter and enjoy creation. It could still be south of 40 degrees in Madison, yet most of us would be happy as could be to step outside with shorts and a t-shirt and feel the sunshine. What is described here is even more amazing In verse 8. The streams and the hills, they clap with hands that we did not know that they had, and they sing with mouths that we did not see. This joy pouring out from an anthropomorphized creation is fully and finally unconstrained. Why is this so? Here's two other components of why we praise God for who he is. He is a God of all creation, and he is a God of righteous justice. This is the final culminating line in verse 9. God comes to judge the earth. He comes to judge the earth with righteousness and the peoples with equity. When we think of God's judgment today, it's my experience that it doesn't always translate well. And we generally come with two minds about this. In the mind of the psalmist, though, justice was unilaterally wonderful, and it was sorely needed. Even with God's instruction given to them, the house of Israel was still a broken people. Sin was still very much in their lives, and equity was a far-off dream. Even King David, with a heart after God's own heart, was murderous in his desire to take what he wanted from the people that he was charged to lead. The priests were corrupt. The people's hearts turned away from their God the one that showed them steadfast love and faithfulness. War, oppression, corruption, cruelty, it was commonplace. Not just human hearts were to blame, though, but the, the ancient natural world was also punishing. Famines, diseases, natural calamities, the list goes on, but it was ruinous and troubling. We see the heart of the ancient poet and Job struggle to understand the tension and trust in God's righteousness amidst a seemingly uncompassionate and an unjust world. They longed and they hoped desperately, for God to come make things right. Who better to judge all things than God? In Jeremiah 9, God Himself says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. One day, the equity and the righteousness that the entire world longs for will come from the most fitting, capable, and perfect judge, the God of action, of character. authority, of creation, and of justice. He delights in it, and the psalmist is so certain of God's consistency that joy resounds forth from everywhere. What a God to place our hope in, and we sing for his return. Now, understanding hope correctly here is important. Curtis Chang, the co-host of the Good Faith podcast, describes hope in this way. Hope gets to this idea that you actually inhabit A story. A story with a past, present, and future that is linked together. A story where the past fills you with longing. The future pays off very specifically on that longing. And then a present which links the past and the future. And it engages your energy. Psalm 98 follows this structure and pattern. In the past, we see God work mightily to save his people. We see a future payoff where he comes to set everything right. And the whole earth rejoices. And in the present... We see that it links the past and the future together and it engages the people of God in unbridled celebration. Taken in its historical context, Psalm 98 calls it our heart's desire along God's people of old. What wonderful joy and hope is expressed. So we come back to our present time and place and we consider again the call for us to sing a new song. And these same words that, that we've been provided here, how do we see God working this for us today? in a fresh, deeper way. One that engages our hope and unshackles our joy. How are we tied to this story in our past, present, and our future? After the writing of this psalm, we know the historical fate of the house of Israel. It was corrupted, it collapsed, and it was defeated. Its people were carried off, oppressed and downtrodden, with no means to save themselves. But God remembers them and he remembers his promise. Suddenly, in Roman-occupied Bethlehem, God's right hand and holy arm show up. The Word made flesh, a God of action, is made man. He works salvation, not in short-sighted military domination or by political savvy, but so much better. He subversively upends a corrupt religious hierarchy and an oppressive regime alike. People without hope have rescue, and they find favor with God. Tax collectors, fishermen, widows, prostitutes, criminals, centurions, zealots, Pharisees, those cut off and far distant from God. Salvation comes to find them with an unmerited, steadfast love and faithfulness shown in the character of Christ. Jesus lives a holy life that we should have lived, tempted as we are, but unstained by sin, and is conspired against and crucified by people who once welcomed him as king. His closest followers desert him. On the cross, God's wrath and judgment for his people's sin is poured out completely on Jesus. Even so, he defeats death and he raises again to life. No one else could accomplish this but God's own son. And through this, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is why we sing for his rescue. After he made purification for sins, the letter to the Hebrews tells us, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know from Jesus himself in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Finding goodness in authority, that's tough for us today. We've seen power misused and abused in every sphere. We don't have a lot of good references to understand what a good king even looks like. One with character, one who acts fairly, knows what it's like to humble oneself. However, we have every assurance that Jesus is a good king. He's the good king, who has been consistent from the very beginning, who is gentle and lowly at heart, who washed the feet of his disciples, and he knows exactly the pain and suffering that we feel as humans on this earth. And he's with us now. Even now he intercedes for us, the long-awaited mediator from Job 9. In the letter to the Corinthians, we're reminded that we're holy temples, and God's Holy Spirit lives with us. And in Romans, we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. So, what then is our application here? What are we to do in the present that engages our energy? Our response to God for being included in his wonderful story, our ultimate calling, or our chief end, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. Mind you, this is so different from what the world tells us is true. Dane Orland reminds us, Every other religion is transactional. The follower acts a certain way out of loyalty to the God, then the God responds with favor. Trace every religion down to the root, and this is what you find. When we come to the God of the Bible, however, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. Believers in this God cannot manipulate him. We only receive. Like the psalmist says, we're to make a joyful noise and to sing praises. In a world where we're taught to keep our joy hidden, or to fake it, what a different sound that makes, especially when our joy rests not in circumstances, but in the capable hands of Christ on the throne. Out of this outpouring of joy, we share the good news that we've received, our reason for our hope, and it's captivating to hear. We don't only sing with shouts of joy, but also through the skillful use of the faculties and the instruments that we've been given, big and small. A lifetime of slowly but surely refining and devoting our praise in everything we do. And how we read God's word. How we talk and we listen to God in prayer. How we show hospitality. How we labor. How we give. How we relate to our families, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbors, our city. With our whole lives, we tune and practice all we are into something that through the Holy Spirit's work in us becomes ever more intriguing and compelling an artful display of delighting in our Lord. And trumpets that declare the reign of Christ, our King, not just bold and declarative, but also acknowledging submission, that he is the one in charge of all things. And we welcome him. In times of plenty and blessing, we praise God for all that he gives us. When things go sideways in our understanding, and our days are dark, and we suffer, we pray, and we trust. And we praise God that our hope is secure in our King. All of this to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why we sing for his reign. And yet, in our present, with all we've learned from history, we still have reason to look forward. We still yearn for equity and justice. And we still miss the mark when we strive to achieve it. We struggle with sin and evil, but we know that it won't always be so. The Apostle Paul tells us that we know that all creation is groaning in expectation for Christ's return, just as we are. Creation itself is eager for all things to be made right and ready to burst forth in song when he comes to judge the earth righteously and to judge the people with long-awaited equity. All of our hope points here. In Revelation, we see John's vision of the triumphant return of Christ our King, who comes to judge the world in righteousness. Paul reminds the people of Athens he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In this, we have every reason to expect his second coming, this is why we sing for his return. The fulfillment of God's promises in Christ far surpasses the wildest dreams of the psalmist. The story is fresh, and it's new, and we're tied to it. We're a part of the story, and in it we have a past that fills us with longing, a present that links the past and the future together, and it engages us in joy, and a wonderful future that we share through Christ. With this, we're unburdened to sing. As Isaac Watts put his retelling of Psalm 98, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let Earth receive her king. I would have never thought I'd be a proponent of Christmas in July, but here we are. In Christ's rescue, reign, and soon to come return, we have every reason to sing and to celebrate. We've learned that Christ's coming was the plan all along. Although written long ago we see the psalm was absolutely correct, and it holds completely true for us today, yet with a deeper, more richer understanding of God's faithfulness and his grace. God reminds us here that he alone is worthy of our hope and our joy and that he keeps his promises. Praise be to God. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for calling us into your story through your son, for giving us a past and a future and giving us such a calling in the present. We're broken people on the ends of the earth who have no claim to come before your throne, yet you welcome us in as sons and daughters with faithfulness and everlasting love and in celebration. Thank you that you continue to work in us, that you would never leave us, and that you give us such hope and joy, and that we can find our heart's desire in you. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.